This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. There's historic accounts of the Nez Perce fishing in these streams, the, the Selway and the Clearwater streams and the, and the salmon. And we have evidence of net fishing. So we find, um, they're called net weights. So folks would take a gravel from the river and grind or peck out a groove all the way around it so that they could tie some rope or twine around that and secure it to a net that they've made. And with a few dozen net weights, gravel weights, you tie them on there, you can throw a net out on the, across the river and if there's a steelhead or salmon run, the river is full of fish. And so you can pull out large volumes of fish. This episode comes to you from Idaho, from the Selway River. Over the past two summers of 2018 and 2019, I've been able to row boats down the Selway for an archaeology research expedition that was fulfilling a contract with the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest to survey new and existing archaeological sites along the Selway River corridor. The Selway is protected by the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act and is of pristine beauty, crystal clear water, and abundant wildlife. It is also a river valley that has been traveled and inhabited by humans for thousands of years. Jeff Adams from Interior West Consulting led this trip and survey and sat down with me next to the river during each of our trips. Jeff has surveyed a handful of river corridors in Idaho and shared with the river radius what he has learned about historic and prehistoric life along the Selway River. Jeff, welcome to the river radius. We have finished year two on the Selway. You've been on a few rivers in Idaho doing this kind of work. You've also, you've also boated a lot of other rivers throughout the West. Can you describe for us beyond the details of, of the lengths and the location, just describe the nature of the forest, the canyon. Yeah, I can. The, the Selway is a, is an, it's a free-flowing river. It's an undammed river, one of the few that are remaining in the West. And it's a, the river flows off the west slope of the, of the Bitterroot Mountains, which are a spectacular, rocky, craggy range of mountains. Uh, and the river cuts deep, deep canyons and valleys off the west side of the, of the Bitterroots and flows deep and clear through some beautiful stretches of water or stretches of canyon. The river has grown in size from a little stream flowing over rocks in the mountains when we first saw it to a, a full-size river of the Columbia Plateau. This is a beautiful canyon, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. On one side of the river we have forests that are typical of the Pacific Northwest, uh, hemlock, fir and western red cedar. On the other side of the river we have more rocky mountain communities, grassy slopes and ponderosa pine and, and, and brush and the river you know cuts through a very deep gorge and over many rocks and some technical rapids and um, yeah a really really spectacular place. So we're in the central Rockies here but you know, it's a, it's a, we're on the edge of the Columbia Plateau. So Columbia Plateau, meaning the big plateau off the west slope of the Rockies that the Columbia River and its drainages, such as the Snake and the Salmon and the Selway drain, the Columbia Plateau. The forests on the south side of the river are on generally north-facing slopes. 
they're wetter, they're cooler, the snow stands longer, and so you have forests that are more typical of, of the northwest where you have more precipitation. Here on the other side, on the south side where we're sitting, up the slope a little ways, it's grassy and brush and more open because it's facing south. So there's more sun, different species. It's drier, particularly, uh, that, that create that contrast. And last, but absolutely not least, tell us about the water. You talked about there's technical rapids, but just this water. Tell us about that water. <laughs> well, the water is just beautiful. It's, it's as clear as it gets. It's full of fish. It's really beautiful water. You get, you float over some really deep, deep pools where you can't even see the bottom, and it's crystal clear. And it's a river that's 40, 50 feet deep in places and flowing swiftly over shallow gravels, and so very dynamic. And it's really cutting through rock its whole way. It's not a big meandering stream or any kind of big flowing river. It's it's just a, it's a stream that cuts through the, this gorge that's steep and, and all rock. Would you please tell us how you are accessing these archaeological sites? We are um, using river access, you know, that is rafts, kayaks, Team 7, three rafts and a couple of kayak safety kayakers, and we're working our way down the river looking at... Uh, archaeological sites and areas with the potential for archaeological sites. So in the introduction, I spoke about the archaeology work you're doing, but would you tell us what it is you're doing on the Selway for the second year in a row? Well, we're, we're working with the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest, um, doing archaeological research. You know, the Forest Service is tasked with managing the resources that occur along the river. The river itself, of course, the fishery, but then other resources, timber, cultural resources, biological resources. And so this stretch of river flows through the wild and scenic corridor, which has special treatment and special management. We're working with the Forest Service, trying to visit and document archeological sites and historical sites along the river and within the wild and scenic corridor, because there are important resources, historic and prehistoric resources there, archeological sites that need to be protected sometimes or you know, need to be salvaged because they're eroding away. Or... So our goal is to help the Forest Service manage cultural resources along the river. We, we just finished year two. Year one, year two, why two years, why maybe more years? Well, the original agreement that the Forest Service and I developed was uh, a two-year research program two trips, performing work along the, the main Selway River. We're working right along the riverbanks. We're going to places that we know where, there are, where there's archaeology sites and historic sites already, and we're revisiting those sites, assessing their condition, documenting any changes in the, in the condition or any new damages or impacts, erosion, things like that. And we're also working in areas that nobody's ever formally looked for archaeological sites or, or historic sites. And so in those areas, we're, we're walking around along the riverbanks and, and back in the woods and looking for sites that way too. So initially, we came up with a scope of work that included two years of research. But then we added another element, so we are going to do a third trip that's going to require some overnight backpacking up in the Selway Bitter Wilderness. But 
the length of the trip basically limits the amount of work we can do in one, in one trip. So we only have about seven or eight days that we can squeeze in all as much work as we possibly can while floating down the river. So that's why we developed a multi-year plan because we can only do so much work each year based on the river flow and, and, and timing and that kind of thing. So I want you to, if you would, tell us about um, the walking you're doing. Because I, I think, you know, the vision I have when I go on river trips is I'm wearing quick dry clothes and a PFD and I'm trying to stay out of the sun and I've got my, little, my river feet, my river shoes on and all this kind of stuff. But that's not how you're cruising through the forest. So if you would tell us about how you walk and the nature of where you're walking, tell us about that, please. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot different than walking on trails. You've, you've done some hikes with us. That's easy walking, we say. <laughs> what we do when we identify an area where we want to go look for, for cultural resources, we are, in basic terms, bushwhacking through some pretty heavy forest, big timber and overgrown areas. A lot of the areas that we walk around in up there have either burned in recent years or some areas the pine beetles have gotten to the trees and, and killed stands of trees and, and then the wind blows the trees down. So sometimes we find ourselves in some really, really difficult places, you know, just deep in the forest and thick vegetation and down trees. And it's very challenging at times. We determine the areas that we want to go do our survey, our hiking around, based on their proximity to the river or, you know, is there flat ground? Is there a large terrace? Is there an old river terrace that we want to hike up to that's now forested and, and look around up there and see if there's some historic sites? Is there, are there cabins or, or are there old pit house villages or something like that? So it's difficult work along the Selway River. The, the, the forests are thick, the timber's big down trees and, and thick undergrowth pose, pose a real challenge to hiking through those woods if you're not on a trail. So I've seen you guys gear up, you know, the long pants, the heavy boots, long sleeves and dive into the forest and a couple hours later you come out <laughs> looking like you've <laughs> done just that, bushwhacked on side <laughs> yeah. hills and all these things, thirsty, hungry and, and just wanting to swim. To add into that, I on this trip I remember uh, one, of the, one of the guys from the archaeology team, Hugh, he he, he launches off into the flats, the thick, the trees falling down, the, the understory, all this stuff. And all of a sudden he says, hey, come check it out. You know, and I go over there and I look and I don't see a thing. And he is seeing what he believes to be pit houses. And the deeper I looked, I could start to see it. But, you know, it's a trained eye you guys are working with as you're doing your thing. With that kind of terrain, how, how do you even pick out any sort of artifacts locations where people might have lived had fish roasting pits what is what is a what's going on with your eye and your skill set that you see out there that that brings you to these artifacts yeah that's it is difficult in those environments to to find artifacts and, and little little bits of things like we're looking for but all archaeologists professional archaeologists you know, have at least a bachelor's degree and have gone to a field school and, and, and Hugh, he's got a master's degree and 20 years of experience and, and he and I have been working together for quite a few years now and uh, this is I think three or four years of river river trip work that we've been doing and it, it does, you have to learn and even Hugh's got a ton of experience and 
it took him a couple of trips to really learn how to see what, what we're looking for along the river. It, what's really important is that you have to know what you're looking for before you go looking. We, we study what's already known in, about the, the history and the archaeology of the region. But you study before you go on the trip. Correct, yeah. yeah. So we, we, we do our background research and we know what kind of sites and you're talking about something we would call a feature, a, a depression on a terrace that was probably a pit house. We know that those occur in the region, so we're looking for those specifically. Mm -hmm. we, and so, you know, we're, we build on the knowledge that, that has already been gained by previous researchers and previous archaeologists. And so you do have to be trained and you do have to know what you're looking for and understand what you're finding when you do find something. And, and it's difficult, you know, you, like you're talking about on the, you find something that looks just like it's supposed to look, but it's all you can find. It, you know, you're just not really sure sometimes if what you're, you know, what you're finding, but that's, that's what we're there for. We're there to, to, to try to understand all these things and, and, and create a, a body of knowledge and a body of information that we can use to, to manage these sites and these resources. Uh, where, where the forests haven't been burned or recently or, or beetle kill or whatever or that the canopies mature and you can see the ground in the forest and you'll find some bare ground and a, a nice mature forest allows you to see the ground better and we do a lot of a lot of walking many miles that we walk we can't really see the we can't even see our feet so we're not really gonna find anything, but we have to get from there to the next place. And, and the forest changes really fast. Like the fires aren't consistent. They, they burn one spot and not another. So we have to hike around. We have to push through these areas so that we can hopefully find other areas where we, we, can, all, where we can, can find stuff. The most likely place for us to find things is on the terraces the, along the riverbanks and on the terraces right down by the river. But we have found things up on higher benches and up, up the slopes and the vegetation kind of determines what we're going to find and, and where we're going to find it but we got it you have to go look that's just part of the the method that we use you have to go look otherwise you don't know so let's talk a little bit then about technique on these trips there are three of you that are trained archaeologists that are out there doing the work and that's also not just you know it's not it's not just a an unorganized effort when you embark on a a search across a, a site or doing a survey. Can you talk about how the three of you take on a place that you're gonna walk through? Yeah, we, we use a very systematic approach to covering these areas that we're talking about. So say for example, we identify an area that's 25 or 30 acres and along the river and it goes up onto a, the slope. What we normally do is we space ourselves out at a designated interval typically somewhere from 15 meters apart to 30 meters apart so 50 feet to 100 feet and we walk along at that spacing trying to stay together and communicate in the thick forest it's really hard to communicate you do a lot of yelling and locating each other and so then systematically we hike around the area that we've identified and cover the whole thing we call them transects each individual line that we walk so we designate the area we line ourselves up we use GPS technology to identify the areas and navigate around. We space ourselves out and start walking and double back and systematically sweep back and forth and cover the whole area until we're done. And, and sometimes we find stuff and sometimes we don't. But that's, a, that's, the, 
a basic survey method we call it. So surveying, systematic survey and search. On these archeology span expeditions, I've come to understand that you are searching out two kinds of his, well, two kinds of old things. I'm using quotations here, two kinds of old things. You have the historic and the prehistoric. Can you define those two and put the marker in between that separates them and also explain how that marker in between historic and prehistoric varies across this continent? Yeah, I, I, I can explain that. And it, the, the terms have changed over the years. Back 25, 30 years ago, it was simple terms, prehistoric, historic. Nowadays, the line isn't very clear because this was in reference to Europeans arriving in the area that you're studying, Idaho, for example. We used to have a hard line about 500 years ago at 1500 AD when, when Europeans settled and, and moved to North America. But over the, over the last 25 or 30 years, those, those lines we understand aren't very clear because obviously Native Americans continued to live on their own after Europeans had settled. And so the, there's overlap between what we refer to as historic and prehistoric. Prehistoric, in general, referred to sites or, or the time when aboriginals or Native Americans lived in North America before European contact. So the historic period would be after Europeans arrived. So like I said, Europeans didn't necessarily arrive in Idaho until the 1860s or 70s. So to say that prehistoric and historic ended and started at a specific time is, is difficult to do. Nowadays, we, we often refer to Native American sites versus historic Euro-American sites. But Native Americans are still live in these places, so there are also historic Native American sites. Mm. And again, we used to have a hard line, and nowadays we, there's different terms. Native Americans versus Euro-Americans. On these, on these Selway trips, you are encountering truly prehistoric artifacts, Native American historic, and correct me on my language here, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get it all correct, but you are encountering artifacts that are very old, and you're also encountering these Euro artifacts, these Euro historics. What are you targeting? That's the question. The National Historic Preservation Act is, is the body of law that makes professional archaeology happen. So there, there's a body of law. In 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act was written, and at that point, we started to categorize historic sites and archaeological sites. Basically, the cutoff for a site is 50 years. So what we're looking for is anything that's 50 years or older. We're not targeting anything in specifically uh, Native American or Euro-American. We're looking for anything that's 50 years or older. And that's just the cutoff that we use. Tell us about what you are finding, what, what types of artifacts you're finding on these expeditions. The Native American sites that we find we find artifacts that are made out of stone, such as arrowheads and knives and, and chopping tools that are made out of river cobbles and that kind of thing. And a lot of burned, burned rocks that the natives would build big piles of rocks and build fires on them and make really smoky fires to smoke fish with. And so we find a lot of burned rock piles and burned rock scatters. And with those, we'll find other artifacts like chopping tools and grinding tools, cutting tools, and those kinds of things. And those are the most common things we find. Rock art is really common along, not really common, but there are, there are a number of rock art panels, rock art sites along the Selway, along the Salmon, other rivers in the region. 
So those aren't artifacts, but those are part of the landscape. And we're looking for those things too. So, and then historic sites in the Selway Canyon here, a lot of the old historic sites have been cleaned up. A lot of the trash has been picked up. And so we don't really find a lot of artifacts. The sites that we see out there that are historic are uh, you know, cable bridges, remnants of cable bridges, remnants of um, ele electrical line, like uh, insulators nailed to trees. You might find some cans or something, some trash dumped by folks that were down there historically. But the historic sites tend to be more like buildings and, and corrals and things like that. Are you looking for a new riverboat, a cataract, a raft, or maybe you need some new dry bags or a Paco pad, the original Paco pad. Jack's Plastic Welding hand builds each boat, each dry bag, each Paco pad in the United States. They have been building all of their gear here in the United States since the beginning 36 years ago. Personally, I've been rowing the same Jack's Plastic cataract for the past 13 years. It's been down the big water of the Colorado River and the narrow, steep, fast drop rivers like the Selway in Idaho. It carries the big loads for the long trips. It threads the slots for the rowdy trips, both of which are happening on the Selway. And it is perfectly tough. And I do not row perfect. I hit rocks. I get stuck. I am hard on my boat. Jack's Plastic Welding is the boat I row. It's the boat a lot of my river friends row. And my gear is always dry and easily accessible in my Jack's dry bag. And at the end of the day, I sleep amazing on my Paco pad. Jack's Plastic Welding. Welded seams. Hand-built perfectly tough. I'd like you to describe three different um, artifacts you're finding. I find these choppers, for whatever reason, they're super simple. They're, they seem to be fairly ubiquitous. Would you just tell us about the choppers? Yeah, that's probably the most common artifact type that we find in the riverine environments up here in Idaho. Chopper tools are basically a river cobble, a nice rounded cobble. A chopper can be made really simply by picking up a rock and cracking it against another rock and knocking a chunk of that rock off and then taking another rock and hitting it a couple more times. You make a little bit of a working edge, a sharp edge. Really easy to make. It takes li very limited effort. And then you have a tool that you can, that has a good cutting edge you can use the other surfaces to pound and grind and so you can process all different kinds of foods vegetable and animal foods using these chopper tools we find them all the time we we think that most that they're a really common tool type associated with harvesting uh, fish which is obviously in these riverine environments was an important an important resource so we think that these cobbles these, these chopper tools that are made from these cob river cobbles were used in the processing of, of fish, either scraping or chopping, scraping scales or chopping heads or whatever. But it's a simple tool. You find them a lot. They seem to be the most common type of thing you find on, on sites along the river. And then uh, projectile points, maybe also known as, as arrowheads, you've, you've come across some really beautiful ones. Tell us about what you're seeing. We have found some, yeah. It's always fascinating to find an arrowhead. Everybody's, yeah. you know, it's the, the right. mystique. <laughs> and it, anybody 
the first time they find an arrowhead, I mean, even the 50th time you find an arrowhead, it's a really exciting experience. It, it means something more than just finding an artifact. It's, it, it's somebody made this thing and put a lot of time in it, used it to hunt. And so there's a story. So arrowheads are really an awesome thing to find. And we have found a few. Yeah, last year on our first trip, we found a few old points near Goat Creek Rapid in an unexpected place, right there, laying there. And just neat. They also indicate time. So finding an arrowhead allows you to date the site. Certain types of arrowheads were made at different times in the past. So you find a certain type, you know how generally how old that site might be. So yeah, last year we found a couple, and then this year we found a, a couple, one nice arrowhead. They're hard to find. They're small, and these are big areas, and people pick those up. So, mm -hmm. you know, people find an arrowhead, they tend to just pick it up and put it in their pocket. And so when we find them, we're pretty excited. They, they have special meaning, and they offer more information than just your regular artifact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people were down there hunting. They were making arrowheads. They were hunting probably bison and elk and deer and smaller animals. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's arrowheads projectile points you were right that's the term that the archaeologists use we find we're finding them along the rivers down here so we know people were in here hunting and making tools and and then last one for a description well we're going to talk later about fishing and the river culture but uh the rock shelters and you, yeah tell us about these rock shelters i also found those to be very interesting and and i personally i wouldn't have i written i wouldn't have recognized them yeah, well, a rock shelter, just to define that first, is an over. It could be an overhang. It could be a big boulder that has one side that overhangs. It could be at the base of a cliff and, and almost like a cave. It's just a sheltered area. When they get to be really big, we usually call them caves. So a rock shelter is kind of like a small cave. Along the river, in the river canyons in Idaho and elsewhere in the West, you find a lot of shelters from erosion and from big boulders coming down the canyons. And they make a nice temporary shelter for anybody that's traveling through the area, whether it's a, a Native American 2,500 years ago or a, a backpacker 25 minutes ago. Rock shelters, a, it's a natural feature on the landscape that draws people in. So when you see one as an archeologist, your first thought is, that there's probably somebody's used it uh, and maybe it's been used for 3,000 years maybe maybe not but so they're, they're unique features that we tend to find stuff at because they provide temporary shelter and along the cellway we've seen a few right along the river trail there's rock shelters and um, and some other places but quite a few this year we we visited a, a two sites this year Two good rock shelters we found on the lower portion of the river. Uh, last year we visited a couple of others upstream further. There are rock shelters along the Selway River that, that people have been using as temporary shelter for, for thousands of years. Those landscape features are unique and really, like you asked earlier about what are we targeting, I guess that's the kind of thing where we, where we're gonna find something. Where's, where is it that we're gonna find something? A rock shelter is a wonderful place to look. Let's clear the air. You said uh, when we were talking about arrowheads that everybody likes to grab an arrowhead and take them home. What are you guys doing? Because you guys are finding some cool stuff. What do you do with the stuff you find? Well, on the Selway, on this trip, 
these trips, this, this research we're doing here, we're leaving the artifacts where we find them. If we were to find something that was right in a campsite or right in a trail, we probably would, would collect that, pick it up, document its location, bring it back and give it to the Forest Service. And the Forest Service would, would cure, store it, you know, either in their facility or at a state facility. But we haven't picked anything up. We, we prefer to leave the artifacts there. You know, collecting artifacts from federal land is illegal. So for the listeners, if you find arrowheads, <laughs> take some pictures, make a drawing, take all the pictures you want, but put it back and leave it there. Somebody else can find it and enjoy it. And archaeologists can find it and learn from it. They're there and you might find one. We prefer to leave them if we can. If we feel like it's in a it's in danger of being collected or destroyed or picked up, collected or destroyed, then, then we'll sometimes collect them, but we prefer to leave them. Leave them where they are and we can come back and find them again. You can learn everything you want to learn from a photograph or a drawing of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about humans. We're talking about artifacts and humans left these artifacts many, many years ago. Let's, let's have a conversation about the humans that were there. What do you know about the people that were living in the Selway Canyon? Who are we talking about? It's hard to link uh, Aboriginal, historic Aboriginal groups with into the, into the deeper past. So we know that the Nez Perce tribe occupied the lands along the Selway in historic times. When Euro Europeans came to this part of the country, the Nez Perce used this area and the Shoshone to some extent, but mostly Nez Perce. Tracing back that kind of cultural heritage further into the past couple thousand years is really, really hard to do. We don't have any language to use. The artifacts are just made of stones. There aren't like art, symbolic art that we can use. So the further back in time you go, the harder it is to know who the people were. What we do know is that, that there were people, Native American folks were using we're accessing the canyons of the Clearwater Basin seven to 8,000 years ago. We don't have any examples of that type of occupation along the Selway itself, primarily because there hasn't been a lot of archeological research done because it's in the wilderness. The adjacent river valley is called the Loxa River and the Loxa and the Selway flow into one another downstream of, of where, we, where we're working and form the middle fork of the Clearwater. Now upstream on the Loxa, the highway goes, follows the river. So there's been a lot more archeological research done along the Loxa River because the highway's there. There's campgrounds, there's pullouts, there's all kinds of you know, developments and facilities and disturbance from the highway. And, and to be clear, the, the archeology span work had to come before those, the highway was put into place or maybe not necessarily before? Not necessarily. The highways were probably built before right. we had any laws or protection. Okay. We, and then we did research later as we expanded the highways, built new campgrounds and that kind of thing. So, so initially the road was probably built. Sites may have been impacted or destroyed. Mm -hmm. Nothing you can do about that. And then later as we developed our, you know, our law, body of law that protects these types of resources, we were, we, more studies were required. But anyway, along the Selway River, or I'm sorry, the Loxa River, there are a couple of sites that have been uh, investigated beyond just like I was explaining earlier where we're just looking for artifacts on the surface. People dug into these sites, did excavations, formal, careful excavations. 
radiocarbon dating, you know, analysis of artifacts and all that stuff, and they found sites that are seven, 8,000 years old along the Loxa River. So we know that, and this is the, this is the Lolo Trail, the Nez Perce Trail that comes down the Loxa. So obviously it was a major corridor for travel, you know, both by Native Americans before Europeans arrived on the scene, and now there's a highway there. So the Loxa Valley has some old sites. We know about those. And, and on the rivers in the region, we find the same type of thing. So we're assuming that the Selway has a similar uh, history of occupation going back seven, 8,000 years, maybe 10,000 years. But we don't at this time have any real evidence because we're doing a lot of the initial research is being done on our trips. So then you, I'm hearing you say that it's not 100% clear what um, I don't know, sect or tribe or band of humans were occupying that area. You have some ideas, but you're not you and, and archaeologists in general are not 100% sure. Right. It, in, deep, in deeper time. So a long time ago, it's hard to tell. We know that the Nez Perce lived in the Selway River Canyon or, you know, used the Selway. They, they lived there seasonally, perhaps. But we know that for sure based on uh, ethnographic research that was done in the 1890s. But when you go further back in time, we don't know if they were the ancestors of the Nez Perce or not, I guess is the, that's what I'm trying to say. Native Americans were there. Whether they were Nez Perce ancestors or not, we don't know. We know that the Nez Perce did use that area later in time, you know, in the last couple of thousand years, and that European contact had used that area recently. But looking further back in time, it is hard, we, we aren't clear exactly who the folks were that, that were living there. And ne so we're talking Nez Perce. We know that you know that they were there at some point, um, and they're in the area today. What do you know about the Nez Perce in terms of where they live today? Well, the Nez Perce Reservation is north of the Selway Canyon and north of the uh, Middle Fork. The tribal headquarters is located along the North Fork of the Clearwater River. Historically, we know that the Selway River Canyon represents the southern extent of the of their range, the southern extent of the Nez Perce range. So in 1892, Alice Cunningham Fletcher, uh, anthropologist, did ethnographic research among the Nez Perce. She, she, she lived among them for a couple of summers. In her studies, she uh, worked with an informant who identified an old village uh, within the Selway River Canyon. So that's really the primary bit of evidence that we have that the Nez Perce themselves used the Selway River Canyon was through an ethnographic account that was recorded in 1892. And in that account they identified a village, one of the older villages in the, in the history of the Nez Perce in fact. So that area has been identified as such and now the Nez Perce don't, again they don't live that far south anymore and they didn't live that far south even when Europeans first came to the area. But through this ethnographic research, through these accounts, we learned that that they did at one point have some village sites up in the canyon. Let's start talking about how this community of people living along the Selway interacted with the river. You know, I've been on these trips and I can I can paint a picture of what I think it might have looked like, but this is your work. This is your world. You research this all winter. You go on these trips in the summer, and you've done this for many, many years. How is it that you see these people interacting and living with that Selway corridor? 
I think that the salmon and the steelhead run, the salmon and steelhead fisheries were the primary reason for the Nez Perce and, and later tribes to push their way that far back into the wilderness and, and camp out there for a winter or a summer, whatever, they, whatever season they lived there. It was, to, it was to extract, take advantage of the fishery. The salmon and steel had just millions of calories and, and you know, protein and easy to harvest. And fish and other resources, freshwater, mussels, shellfish, had to have been food for anybody traveling along the river whether it was 7,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. But certainly with the Nez Perce and the historic use of these, or a recent native historic use of these rivers, we know they were extracting fish. They were, they were in there to catch fish and take advantage of the steelhead and the salmon run, the annual runs. Tell us about that extraction. Nets were, were the most common method to catch large amounts of fish. We have evidence of that. We know that they use nets. We find, we rarely find any evidence of the net itself because it's typically made of plants. Those types of materials just break down over time and we don't find them very often in archeological sites. Plant-based twine is not gonna last buried in the soil for 2,000 years. But what we do find are, are weights, net weights, that are made out of local rock. It just gravels from the river. Tell, real quick, what's a gravel? Because I think a gravel is a dump truck full of small rocks, but it means something different. Yeah, we use general terms to describe riverine environments. And we, we start with the smallest particles of clay, and then we have silt, and then we have sand, and then we have pebbles, and gravels, and cobbles, and boulders. So it's a graduated scale of rocks based on their size. So Gravels are the nice little rounded shiny rocks that every river has in them that are pounded down the riverbed and made round. And Are they the size of a ping pong ball? Yeah, from a ping pong size to maybe a uh, softball size rock I would call gravel and then above that I would call cobble. Okay. So, but net weights are small. They're little weights. Maybe peck and grind a little groove around the outside of that so that they could tie some twine around there and attach it to a net. You got 40 or 50 of these and you mm. tie them to, you, you make the net, you gather the plants, you weave it together and you make the net and then you tie your weights on there. You can stretch your net across the river that way, right? So you, you can use a boat or somebody could potentially swim one end of the net across the river and fix the net to the other side, pull it back in and grab some some large fish that are moving up the river trying to um, get back to where they spawn. Let's talk real quick about those fish. Just to be clear, they're coming from the Pacific Ocean, correct? That's so correct. They come up the Columbia, then up the Snake, and then up the, help me out here. Up the Clearwater from the Snake. To the Selway? Yeah, it seems impossible. First of all, they, they start as an, an egg that was laid in the gravels in the streams where we're working now, up here on the Selway. Then these fish grow big enough and they swim downriver to the ocean and they live in the ocean for a couple of years. And then they swim back to the source, to the place where they were hatched. That's an amazing thing, right? We're talking yeah. hundreds and hundreds of miles. And today, there's reservoirs, multiple reservoirs between the Pacific Ocean and the clear water drainage. So through the construction of fish ladders, which we have invented to allow fish to do this, to 
precisely to swim upstream. We've built causeways around our dams so that the fish can swim from the ocean to the spawning grounds where they were born. The salmon and the steelhead is an amazing life cycle of any, almost any critter on earth. This, it's an amazing thing to cover that kind of ground, live in salt water and fresh water, and it's really impressive. So there's two runs a year. They run in the spring, both species. The steelhead are a trout. They're essentially a, a really big rainbow trout that can live in salt water for part of, of its life. Anyway, there's a run in the spring and there's a run in the fall. The, the spring run typically happens in um, February and into March, real early, right after the right after the snowpack and the ice breaks up, but before the river, the runoff really picks up. And then again in the fall, typically October into November. So at the very end of the season, before the river freezes up, the, the fish move upstream. And obviously living along the river 1500 years ago and all of a sudden it was full of fish. Of course you would try to harvest those fish and, and make those part of your diet and try to smoke and dry it and store it for the winter when food is scarce. And so the those fisheries were really important for the natives of the of the American Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, and still are still really important to the economy of modern, you know, river towns and, and modern cities and, and modern culture in the Pacific Northwest. These people that are living there are coming to the river at this time of year and these fall and these spring runs to meet these runs, to, to harvest from these runs. Is this a short-term visit? come down for a week do you i mean obviously there's a there's some speculation based on research but do you do you assume assess that this is a short-term visit or is this a longer-term visit that's accompanied with these other shelters that that you find in various places i think you probably have both uh, things happening okay. throughout time you know you you have some years if it's not a good run you may have a group may come in and camp out for let's say the the fall run and maybe their harvest wasn't great, and so they moved on because they didn't gather right. enough fish right. Right. to live through the winter on. Then other years, if the runs were good and you are capturing a surplus of fish and that you can dry and smoke and dry and store for the winter, then, then maybe these groups would stay through the winter. So you may have a seasonal village, a winter village. They move in in the fall, set up their village, harvest as much fish as they can, live through the winter hunting and gathering still come spring run harvest again and then move on in the summer to hunt bison on the plains or back to the west on the Camas prairie to hunt and gather so i think both things probably were happening people maybe moved camped on these sites for a whole season and other times maybe for just a few weeks maybe and, even just a couple days in some cases and you've mentioned um in, in the artifact spectrum that you are you are coming across in your research that you're finding roasting pits, correct? Tell us about these, please. Yeah, well, they're not necessarily pits, but we'll find big piles of burned rock. So you know, folks would gather up a bunch of cobbles from the river. Cobbles are big rounded rocks, uh, bigger than a softball. And they'd gather up hundreds of these, hundreds of pounds. A group of people could do this and pretty pretty easily. You go down to the river, you gather them up, you pile them up, you build a big fire on top of it. The rocks get heated and you keep adding fuel, sticks and branches. The point would be to smoke the fish, typically. Now you're gonna find all kinds of small little hearths and uh, fires and little roasting pits 
that are used for various things, for roasting plant foods or roasting venison or, or, or bison or elk. But when we find these big, big piles that are just burned rocks, we're pretty sure that they were building big fires on these. They would build a little frame above it and hang the fish off of it and smoke fish. Similar to what folks did on the plains with bison meat. You know, you would, a group of folks would go and, and hunt and kill 20 or 30 bison as a group. You can't store the meat if, without refrigeration. So what do you do? You build a big fire and smoke and dry the meat or the fish. So, yeah, we do. We find these big piles of rocks. Sometimes they're just eroding out of the riverbank, and they'll have artifacts with them. Sometimes they'll have bone. Sometimes they have shell. But the idea is that they were building big smoldering fires to create smoke to dry and smoke fish. And they're hanging, they're making some sort of rack above this smoke, above this fire? Yeah, just a, a simple little uh, temporary structure, yeah. four posts and a few, you know, beams and just something simple that you could build in an afternoon and mm -hmm. a bunch of cross members where you just hang fish fillets or strips of bison meat as they would do on the plains. Common practice, smoking, drying, meat, and fish. Obviously, along the riverbank, you would assume that a lot of that was for, specifically for, for, for the salmon and the sure. steelhead. Then let's just go on this idea that these folks are having a good harvest, they're staying longer, then they're building a shelter. And we've talked about the rock shelters, but there's also these pit houses. Can you talk about the pit house? Yeah, it's come up a couple times, probably should define that. So pit houses, it's a shelter that they constructed. They would dig a, a circular pit, generally, maybe sub-rectangular kind of rounded corners. Dig a pit, build a berm around it, and then build a small structure over it out of posts and limbs and hides, cover it with hides so it's dry. And um, yeah, if you're going to stay in one place for an extended time and you didn't have a rock shelter to live in, then you would build yourself a small shelter. When we find them today, they're simply a, a circular depression, often with a berm around one side, maybe a couple of artifacts nearby, maybe not. We do find pit houses along the Selway. We've seen a lot of them. This year and last year, we've recorded a number in various places along the river. So we know that folks were, were living here for extended periods, basically. If you find evidence of a structure like that, you know that they were more invested than just camped out for a few days or even a week. They built a structure. They were going to stay for a while, maybe a season, a couple months while they harvested fish and prepared it or whatever. So yeah, along the Selway, we're finding quite a few pit houses. So we know folks were, were living on a semi-sedentary basis in the canyon, primarily to harvest fish. Do you have any idea if these pit houses are kind of a return structure, meaning that a group of folks might make a loop between a handful of different locations on, in a geographic region and come back to a place that was good fishing and that they've already got the pit house kind of partially in place to come back and rehide it kind of thing. Definitely. Definitely think that, that that's how the, these sites were used. They, if they were seasonal habitations, they would live there for the season, do what they did, and then they would move off to the plains perhaps. So from some of the Selway River, you can hike over the Bitterroots and be out on the grasslands where the bison ran. You could hike over there in a couple of days. They would leave the river canyons and go out on the plains and hunt bison or go west to the Camas Prairie and harvest Camas root and, and store up that. And so, but these, these sites we do believe are on, a, you know, on their map, so to speak, where they were returning to these locations, freshen up their structures, 
some years, maybe maybe sometimes a couple years ago by and they didn't get back to there, but we think they did. We also know that based on some research down on the Salmon River, that these structures would even be reused maybe after they'd abandoned for a hundred years. Hmm. Groups would come back in and reuse these structures. We've, we've seen some evidence of that uh, up on the Salmon River. The Nez Perce tribe and the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest did some excavations near ba- Mackey Bar and, and found evidence that um, you know the, the structures were, were quite old but had been reused as recently as four or five hundred years ago by Nez Perce tribes that had come back into the area. So these these sites, so to speak, these villages, they're in their collective memory. They, they know where they are, the information's passed down. Maybe they didn't go there every year, but when they knew there would be a good harvest, if they could get there, if the snows came early, maybe they couldn't get, you know, there's so many factors that would have to be considered by a group of people that trying to get back to someplace traveling on foot. Yeah, we, we think that these sites were reused over and over, and over I've, a period of time, maybe for a thousand years even. I've heard you talk about um, the uses of, of a fish. Uh, so obviously there's the, there's the meat off of the fish that is going to be consumed. I've also heard you talk about the skins off these the salmon and steelhead. Tell us about what, what, what you understand those were used for. Yeah, the, the skin is, basically fish skin is a waterproof, little piece of waterproof fabric if you think about it. If you slice a fish open at the belly and skin it off, you, you've got a piece of waterproof material. Take 20 of those, if you, you know, a steelhead is a big fish. It's a 24 inch trout and a salmon too, they're big fish. You take 10 of these fish skins, you could sew them together. You could make, you know, sort of a poncho. You could make a cover for your house. We believe, we know that in the, up, in the, up on the Columbia Plateau, some of the village sites up along the Fraser River, there's evidence that um, the Native Americans were using fish skins to make waterproof clothing, uh, waterproof materials for their structures, clothing, whatever. But yeah, they were using the skins as a, as a waterproof material. You have done research similar to the Selway. You've done research on the, the main salmon, the clear water, the locksaw. Bring that together. So you're doing a lot of archaeological research along river corridors, th- throughout river corridors in Idaho. We could we can pick it apart corridor by corridor and talk about the characteristics of the research. But do do your best to tell us the story you understand about the bigger picture of river corridors and how essential they were to the life of the humans in that area. Well, in Idaho, the river, let's take the salmon. Let's talk about the salmon for a second. The salmon river has been an important travel corridor connecting the Snake River Plains of eastern Idaho and Salmon, you know, the Birch Creek Valley and eastern, southeastern Idaho, connecting that to western Idaho. The, the river cuts through some of the most rugged mountain country in, our, in North America, the Salmon River Mountains. So the river itself, there's, there's a river trail the full length, the full 80 miles of the wilderness stretch of the Salmon. The Salmon River was an important travel corridor. People use that river corridor to travel back and forth between the the Columbia Basin, the Columbia Plateau, and the Great Plains region and the Snake River Plains to the east. The Selway is a little different. It's pretty remote. Certainly didn't have that kind of traffic along it. It doesn't today and it didn't back then. But 
the rivers have always been essentially the easiest way to travel through the mountain country. You follow the rivers to their sources and you go over the pass and come down the big river on the other side. So in Idaho, where the country is extremely rugged and steep and mountainous, the rivers have always played a really important role as travel corridors for Native Americans and today for, for all of us. Our highways follow the rivers today. What's next with all this? Well, we go out and we do our, our awesome trips like we're on here, second time, second year. Get to spend a week out here and study this stuff and enjoy the wilderness and meet people. And But we have to go back after we do this, we have to go back to the office. And we have to download all our data and the thousands of pictures we took and hundreds of pages of notes that we wrote down. We bring all this stuff back to our, to our office and we download all our GPS data and make all kinds of different maps, specific sites, maps that show the whole area. And then we write long reports, long wordy reports about all the stuff we found. So the field work and the river trip part is only about half of what goes into this research. So we go out and we do this work, we bring all that information back and we have to prepare reports that we submit to the Forest Service and they use to help manage these resources. That's the next step. We're, we're done with our second year. We've got a ton of information. We've visited dozens of sites. We've found dozens of new sites. Now we have to go back, put all that together into a formal document so that we can move forward into the future using that information to manage these sites. Beyond that, I would love to continue doing this research, obviously. And if I could do this every year, I would do it. I would, I, I would love to come back to some of these sites that we've been working on on the Selway and do, like I was saying earlier, another phase of investigation. So on some of these sites where we're not really sure what we're seeing, if, if what we're seeing is, is that a real pit house or is it not? We can't necessarily tell from the surface. I would love to come back and, and do some more formal excavations and learn a little bit more about how they were building those structures, what, what's contained within them, what kind of animals were they processing and eating, getting radiocarbon dating so we can get good precise ages of the sites. I also would think it's really important that we look at how modern day use of the river by recreational users, boaters, hikers, outfitters, hunters, fishermen, how what would be really important to establish is how are today's recreational uses affecting the archaeological sites that we've found and that have been found and that we've been working with. Are there impacts? Are we, you know, are some, are we camping right on these sites? And if so, do we need to protect them? Do we need to mitigate, which, you know, do we need to excavate them to get the information that we can before they're completely destroyed. So the next phases of the project would be to look more intensively at what we've found so far. What are the impacts? What sites are, are, are threatened by just the river itself or by river use? So the next phase would be to you know, man, take, take the management to the next level where we try to salvage what we can from sites that are being destroyed we do protection at sites where we can. And then some sites we may not 
find much at all and we'll just walk away and that's fine. So, so I would love to see this research continue you know, for another 10 years and, and just keep revisiting these sites, keep learning from them. Another part of the next I'm curious about is, so this is, this is Forest Service information. There's a lot of this information that's not necessarily to be revealed, uh, locations of certain artifacts. Um, but what, what does become public in the sense of um, a rewrite of a river guide or a hiking guide? Uh, how can outfitters use this to their advantage, not to, not to um, further impact sites, but to help to educate the public? Yeah, it, it enhanced the trip for the for their guests. I mean, yeah, teaching the guides and the outfitters about the history and the and, and the prehistory, if you will, of the of the canyon is only going to benefit all of the people that float down the river or hike the river. Just it makes the experience even more enriching when you when there's a back when you have the historical back backdrop. You know, a lot of people run down the river and they don't know anything about the history. If, they're, if, if you run a private trip down the Selway and nobody knows anything about any of the history, you're just floating by. It's beautiful and you're having a great time. Nothing wrong with that. But, you know, for a com particularly for a commercial trip, if you can offer that to your guests, uh, that extra element of, like, the history and the native, and we'll stop and we're going to show you the, the Selway River rock art panel. And... and that was once a ancient village of the Nez Perce. Like that really enhances a person's experience on a river trip. Just knowing that for thousands of years people have been using the area, that they've been doing things down here along this river that to us is so remote and so wild. But yet for thousands of years, it, it, people have been finding their way there. So I think that the information that we're gathering, although like you're saying, some of it is, is privileged, it's not for the public. We, do, we don't want to tell everybody where the arrowheads are because we don't want the arrowheads to get picked up and go away. But sharing the information, the story of the river, the history along the river, the, the story of the Nez Perce on the Selway, that, that that's, that's just makes the trip more enriching to somebody's knowledge and, and life experience last question i want to ask you the, the work you do you are an archaeologist you are a a professionally trained educated archaeologist and there's a lot of us who might be kind of hobbyish uh, archaeologist or maybe not even the, to that scale but just have an understanding that there was um, a lot of existence of human cultures uh, all over the planet but this is what you do and so you're and you're and you're and you're doing it now in this really unique way of traveling river river corridors and 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 getting to know the people in these places. Uh, there's a lot of people on the planet right now. There's seven billion or more, and uh, some some research suggests that there are more people alive today than have ever been alive before. What are your thoughts on that connectedness between that past, those people of, of the past, the people that we are today, and where we're going in the future? You know, for me, I uh, obviously I'm interested in studying history in the past and using archaeology to, to do that. To me, what's important is understanding how far we've come from the lifestyles that just a couple hundred years ago we all lived. You know, nowadays we are so 
disconnected from you know the the natural world and, and where our food comes from and, and, and how we acquire food and it's important to me to pass this message on that it's all pretty fragile this civilization and this grocery store procurement lifestyle that we live it could go away really fast and it's really important that we don't forget how people survived for most of human history the research we do here there there's excellent preservation of sites where people lived that lifestyle and survived in these places that that are just as hard to survive in today. And not only did they survive, they built villages and they harvested fish and they, they created a culture based on all of, all of it. So to me, archaeology isn't necessarily just a study of the past. It's a study of humans and human nature and human change and culture and technology. And what I like about studying Native American sites, Native American archaeological sites, is understanding how people lived off the land and how they used resources. Use what we learn from the past and from other people who have lived different ways. Taking that and using that knowledge and that wisdom to make life better in the future for all of us. This episode of The River Radius was recorded and produced by me, Sam Carter. Thanks go out to Jeff Adams of Interior West Consulting for having The River Radius join this archaeology research team and sitting down for this interview. You can find The River Radius by name on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, and our website. We are always looking for more great show topics and leads on river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. More episodes are available online. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.